Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for all that you do, always, Lord. I just, I'm honored, Lord, to be able to be present here. I'm honored to be able to open the word together here as a family, together. I ask God for your spirit to, to take us to the places that we need to go to challenge us with your spirit to make the changes we need to do in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not sure what road you take when you're coming to church. Um, I don't know whether you, you, know, you drive down the 36, and not today, but on a regular day, you would see the mountains kind of lit up with the sun. I used to love that when I lived at the Hansons home and, and travel down the 36 and see those mountains, think, oh my goodness, that's just glory, it's just beautiful, it kind of puts your head in the right place. I love to come up Mapleton Avenue, even in the winter now, because I have four-wheel drive, so I love Mapleton Avenue. When I had my Camry, I did it a couple of times, and I remember sliding down all the way back to Broadway, thinking, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to stop, and sure enough, the wheels are going, I didn't stop. Uh, but I, I love that kind of stuff. So maybe you like, as you're coming up Mapleton Avenue, you see the trees and the, as it's building out in this season here, or even the snow right now, it's pretty darn inspiring. Or maybe when you enter into our car park and you find those potholes that you could hire a Prius in, um, and you think to yourself, oh, I wonder if I'm driving over a car right now. You probably are. Probably are. Those are pretty serious out there. Uh, I, was, I was saying maybe we should put a few people out there to just like, you know, shore them up. Uh, so not so much so, but we got some interesting roads to come to church sometimes. And then I thought, I wonder whether personalities, you know, how personalities match your car or personalities match your home. I was talking to a friend this week who said he's buying a new car and he was going to buy a Honda. And, and he's like, it just doesn't match me. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. I mean, who drives a Honda here? Yeah, no comment. And so, uh, <laughs> maybe it does, you know. And he was like, I don't know. It just doesn't match my personality. I don't know. So when you choose your home, you decorate it, your garden, personality maybe even matches your work. Maybe your personality matches your church that you go to. And you're like, I like this church. It kind of fits with my personality. So I thought maybe your personality could match the road that you like to drive on, right? So, for instance, how many of you really love to drive down a single lane, a country lane, a single country lane, yes, where you've got tons of blind corners. Oh, man, wait, in the daytime, you have to honk your horn. At nighttime, you have to flash your lights. You hope there's no tractor around the corner. You hope there's no pedestrian around the corner because you're not slowing down. Oh, no, this is the country lane, and it is calling you, saying, who loves that kind of road? So, you know, yeah, right, you guys got personalities like that, all right. Some of you love maybe the really wide, long, straight roads, like when you're going through that state, I think it's called Nebraska. Um, yeah, I think that's what it's called. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm just driving through it. I'm thinking, who lives out here? No one. And then you stop at a gas station, and like, there's a human being. They must drive here to work every day from where? I have no idea, and I look, and it's just a valley forever. But some people love that. They're like out there watching Netflix, driving for hours on those roads. Maybe some of you love, you know, a highway with three lanes or six lanes. I love really wide highways because you can dance in them. You know, you can just like, ah, oh, I'm bored over here, and now I'm coming over here. This is kind of like over here, and it's just fun. Or maybe you are a city driver. You love a road that's more like a city where you start, stop all the time, you know, and then you're like honking, and you're driving as fast as you can. Last time I was in London with, with Alaya, uh, we were driving in, in uh, the North Circular, and uh, this guy just cut me up. 
I mean, just inappropriately, right? So, so I immediately followed him and cut him off, right? And so we started to chase each other. It's like a, a, little, uh, a little motorway that goes around London, but inside, so the North Circular. So we're right, driving, and every traffic light, we stop, stare at each other, and we're off again, right? <laughs> Trying to cut each other up all the time. And when we got to one of the bridges down, the, I think near Westminster, uh, he pulled over, and he opens up his window, and, he, and he's a taxi driver, and he said, best night I ever had. <laughs> I said, you're welcome. All right, all right. So, <laughs> but maybe, maybe you do that. Or maybe here in Boulder, you know, we've got a lot of roadworks. And, and I feel this temptation, and maybe you feel this temptation as well, with roadworks. I like roadworks because I feel, oh, wouldn't it be fun to drive through the cones? Not on top of them, but just to weave through them. Wouldn't that be fun? You, you, see, there are people who do this. You do this. Don't drive with them. <laughs> They're dangerous. Well, the Bible is full of stories of involving a road. In fact, there's over 60 different stories involving some kind of road or journey. We know some of the famous ones like Balaam and the donkey and the road to Jericho. And the more serious ones like the road to Calvary, we understand that. But, but roads are really important. And uh, for in, in England, you know, people love to walk, but they don't really like to walk on roads. They like to walk in the countryside. They feel like they like to create roads in the countryside. And there's nothing in England like a Sabbath afternoon hike. You understand this? You, you, maybe you do it here as well. Here, I, I get the impression in Colorado, it's more like a, a Sabbath afternoon mountain climb, which is really not appropriate. But a, a Sabbath afternoon hike, I can kind of deal with that. And people will even wear like a, a Sherlock Holmes hat. They'll have like trousers really high up and their socks tucked in and a walking stick. And, and, and as they walk in along, you know, they, they make sure that, that the pace is not too rigorous. Just, just gentle enough, because you're not supposed to exercise, right? So it's just, just a gentle pace. But, but then you also really, really want to just go a little bit faster sometimes, but not so much, because you're not supposed to run. Uh, you know, you're supposed to just enjoy this hike. And I wonder, could it be that we handle our faith the same way? That we've lost the adventure, because everything is kind of set up in that way, that we're not surprised by Jesus anymore, that we like to be safe and we just want to do the same routine, the same hike, the same route every single Sabbath, maybe every single day. I wonder if we made Jesus an idol, you know, because we know everything about him. There's nothing new to learn about Jesus. In fact, we distilled his character down to 28 statements. Uh, we've made him so common, so boring, there's nothing new to discover about Jesus Christ. Well, I want to shift that today. And I want to challenge you with that today. We have two roads. We're going to look at Emmaus and Damascus next week. We have two sermons, Emmaus and Damascus next week. We have two conversations, Emmaus and Damascus next week. And we have two weeks of daily walk, Emmaus and Damascus. And I hope that you looked at the daily walk this week. If you hadn't, it's worth going back into and having a look at that. Honestly, though. It is hard to know what it means to follow Jesus, right? To be his disciple. Do I pursue the job promotion or is that just selfish ambition, right? Because I want to know God's will in my life. Do I go on a holiday to the Cayman Islands or is that a selfish waste? Do I buy more furniture for my home or is that selfish vanity? Do I buy a season pass for skiing or is that selfish indulgence? Honestly, it is hard to know how to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. Then you could also ask these questions. 
if I'm free in Jesus, right? Because we do say this. If I'm living in Jesus, if I am trusting Jesus, then why do I worry? Why do I watch the stock market every day? Why do I, when I'm praying, after 30 seconds, I wander off into some other world? Why is it that when I'm exploring the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, a text message could arrive, an email could ping, a fly could fly by, and I'm distracted if, of course, I'm following Jesus. Honestly, it's hard. It's hard to know what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. And maybe what we're doing is we're lacking something. We feel that maybe we're not fulfilled. We're not really following Jesus as best as we could. In fact, some of us may have a secret dread. Is there more to this? Am I the only one missing it? Or worse yet, is this it? Is everyone pretending it's enough right now? When you think about your walk with God, and you think about how it's going this week, as it's gone the last month, the last year, is this where it should be? Is it growing? Do you feel like, wow, this road is an adventure, and I'm enjoying this, and I'm growing with this? Well, we can agree three things at least. We all want to hear the voice of Jesus. And we want to hear the voice of Jesus today. And we should know the voice of Jesus today. And we need the voice of Jesus today. So, why these two stories of Emmaus and Damascus? Well, because Luke wrote both of them. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, both uh, Luke and Acts are, are kind of book one and part two, and book two. They come together, they're written by the same author, they're telling a story, and all that Luke wants you to do is to be able to embrace Jesus. But the conversations are entirely different. And I'm telling you, you'll see the contrast next week compared to Emmaus and Damascus next week. It's night and day in there. But let's set the scene right now. Let's dive into our Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 24, 1 to 3. It's on page 980. Luke chapter 24, verse 1 to 3. In your pew Bibles, you can pull them out. It's uh, page 980 inside there. And I'm reading the very first verses of chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, which actually I think sets the scene for the passage that we're looking at today that starts in verse 13. So it says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. First day of the week, Luke wants you to know this, it's early in the morning, early in the first day of the week, the tomb is empty, and then, jump with me down to verse 13, because now Luke explains to us what happened here. Then, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So I've got to ask myself this question. Why tell us that it's the same day? Who are these two people? And why Emmaus of all places? Well, the same day is really, really straightforward. It's the same day all the way through here. And the reason it's the same day is because Jesus promised them that he would be resurrected on that day, on the third day. And Luke wants you to know that when Jesus appears, he fulfills his promise. It's pretty deep, isn't it? To, to imagine this, right? It's easy to be living in the promise and not realize it, right? These people are living in the moment and they don't even realize that the promise is being fulfilled. How many times have you felt the same way? When Jesus was with you and his word was faithful and Jesus held you together and yet you didn't even realize that he was there right beside you. Well, the two of them, who are these two people? 
my Bible, in my Bible it actually says that the two of them there, a few other translations say two of Jesus' followers or two of Jesus' disciples. Luke, and I love this about Luke, he adopts a Greek method of writing, and his Greek method of writing is this, is that like, like the, Greek, the Greek classics, he would tell you something, give you a snippet, hide a whole load of bit of information, and let you discover later on who that character is. So he wants you to kind of like connect the dots. He wants to reveal it to you, so you're kind of excited. When I get to heaven, and I'm going to have a chat with Luke, and I have chats with all the writers of the Bible books, and for Luke, I've got a few questions to him. I'm going to say, Luke, seriously, who were these two people? I mean, why, why tell us, but who were these two people, and, and why? Why did you tell us so much and then didn't tell us so little? Why did you give me one name of them, but not the other name? So, what if? And here's a crazy idea, right? And you got to go with me and just and be careful because I did say what if, right? I didn't say this is a matter of fact truth. I, didn't, I don't want you to say, well, he's preaching heresy or anything kind of crazy. I said, what if? Go with me with this. Use your imagination a little bit. What if we followed the tradition that they were going to their home, which is a tradition they had. The Bible says they were on their way to Emmaus. Maybe it was their home. What if they were not two men? Because everybody would have presumed that they were two men because surely only men could be disciples, right? But what if it was one man and one woman? What, in fact, if they were the disciples, which the text kind of alludes to a little bit when it talks about their relationship with the others? What if they were a married couple going to their home which fulfills tradition, which makes sense that a married couple were traveling and they went to their home inside there rather than two guys going there. What if they were intimately connected to the 11 apostles, which the Bible does say that they knew where that upper room was, so somehow they went there, verse 33. What if Cleopas of Luke is the same of Clopas of John? One word, one letter. What if they're the same? Which means that Cleopas was married to Mary. Mary was at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion. And Mary's sister was Mary, who was mother of Jesus, which means that this was Jesus' aunt and uncle. What if? Wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, just imagine if the texts, all those faint texts kind of pulled together and you're thinking to yourself, hey, that kind of makes sense. Because they run back to the room, they know where to go. I mean, everything kind of falls into place. I just kind of lean that way, and I feel that the story kind of leans that way as well and lets us kind of flesh that out inside there. But now, when you go back to the text in Luke 24, verses 13 to 15, and if you imagine that they are his aunt and uncle, read the text a little bit differently in there. It says this, that very day, two of them, Jesus' aunt and uncle, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew himself near them and with them. When we think of this discussion, we think that they were just chatting. Hey, what do you fancy for dinner tonight? I don't know. Let's discuss what that's going on. But the Greek implies that this discussion was a deep, deep discussion because they were devastated. They left the other disciples in the upper room. You understand this? After Jesus died, these people ran into this room, and they hid in the room, and these disciples, this aunt and uncle of Jesus, I believe, were in the room with the other disciples, and they said, I give up. It's the third day. It hasn't happened. He died. I don't understand any of this. It doesn't make any sense. And they said, it is all over. 
And with that wrestling, they start to hit rock bottom. You know that kind of rock bottom, right? Where you weep. The rock bottom where you pray all night, praying to God to help you with that. The rock bottom where you are full of doubt and disbelief. The rock bottom when you realize that you failed those exams. The rock bottom when you get the health test back and they are negative. The rock bottom when you are served the papers and you are divorced now. The rock bottom when you're fired. Those kind of rock bottoms, they feel their life is over. And when you are down, Jesus appears. This is what's beautiful about this text. Verse 15 says, as they're walking rock bottom, arguing with each other, Jesus draws near to them. And then it says in verse 16 that their eyes were closed. Isn't that a puzzling verse? Why does it say that God closed their eyes? Because surely, right now, a bolt of lightning would be really good, encouraging to them. Wouldn't it be great? Surely some thunder, some presence. Surely Jesus could just say to them, I'm alive. See me? It's true. I am the Messiah, and I'm resurrected. I am the Son of God. It is all good. But what if Jesus likes us to grow in a way that we hear his voice? in the way that we hear his voice. So Jesus holds off to let us grow in him, to learn and to discover, to never stop asking questions, to never say that this is not enough, but to know that he's with us, he is listening to us, and he wants us to wrestle and discuss. Notice how most of Jesus' ministry, right, involved questions all the time. There were very few times inside the Gospels that you see Jesus giving a direct answer other than, you know, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Pretty straightforward at that point inside there. But most of the times, Jesus is very much trying to draw you into a place where you learn to converse with God. He will reveal things to you. The disciples asked him many times, but he wants us to get into that place. So Jesus' voice, to hear his voice, involves us listening and learning. Jesus' voice to us is not always answers, but trust. If you have kids, you know that you have two options, really. You can teach them to do something, or you could do it for them, right? I really often feel very tempted to do it for them, and quite candidly, I do do it for them often, especially when it comes to the order of their room. I just feel like, ah, oh, forget this. But you know what? It's difficult, and you have to wrestle through that. If you have employees, you know that you could teach them to do it, or you could just do it for them. If you are a pastor, just imagine, if you are a pastor with a great church, let's say in Volta, with lots of partners and members who come to church, you know, who are involved in leadership in different places, you could teach them, or you could do it for them. Let's give me an example. What example could we use? Planning Center Online. How did that come to me so quickly? I don't know. Because I realized that I've been spending a couple of hours every week chasing every single person, saying to them, hey, you know that text message you got from the producer, Jordan, you know, asking you if you're going to be able to do something? Could you reply yes or no? It's like one button. Just touch it. See what happens. I mean, but it's okay, I, I will touch it for you. There you go, I did it. And I, and I do this every week with so many different people because, you know, I could teach you to do that, or I could just do it for you, right? And it seems right now you want me to do it for you. 
But I don't think that's going to be fun long term, will it? No, no, no. Because we'll all be confused. We won't know what's going on. But I mean, I mean, it is really valuable use of my time every week to call you personally, because that's what we have to do, right? We call you personally to ask you, could you respond to the single email that came? I mean, it's green. It kind of stands out. It doesn't look like another email from anywhere else. Just, just suggesting that maybe this could be a learning moment. All right. So you understand this, that when we are learning, and it's hard to learn because it's difficult with this, but when you're learning, you actually become stronger with this. The more learning you have, the stronger you are with this. You remember when you passed your exams. You remember when you failed your exams. You remember when you worked hard on a project, and you remember when you succeeded by the skin of your teeth inside there. The joy of success is not in the final product, but in what you now learned that you can do again. Do you understand that? I know we love to see the finished product. When I'm building a Lego car, and I build a Lego car, I love that Lego car at the end. But because it took me days to build, right? Because it took me an entire lifetime to build, a decade to build, when it breaks, I know how to fix it. And I enjoy being able to fix it as well. But we learn these things that we're now able to progress forward. When you have heard the voice of Jesus once, you can build on it, and it only gets stronger. When I was a kid, I had to learn the times table. You, you, you guys use that same phrase over here? One times one is one, one times two is two. You notice that I only use the one times table. If I went to two or three, I'd kind of like, I don't know, what, what's two times two? <gasps> and I remember when I was one times one, and I was inside the kitchen, I was seven years old, and my mom was trying to teach me the times table, and I was weeping. Oh, man, I was crying. I hate this. And my mom's like, come on, one times one. I'm like, I hate this. I don't want to learn this. Not understanding, all right? Because I said to her, I've got a magic pen. You remember those really big jumbo pens that you could turn and you could find the times table answers? She said, you're not going to be able to use that in an exam. I'm like, I uh, don't need an exam. And I was crying all the way through this. Not understanding that if you know your times table, and you know all the way up, you actually can do algebra so much faster. So by the time algebra came along, it's like, man, I better go learn all those timetables really quickly, because now I'm going to be able to do the algebra really well, because I understand nine times nine is something. <laughs> See, I didn't say it, just in case it was wrong. So we learn. <laughs> we learn all the time. We're pushing ourselves all the time to learn, and our knowledge grows us through these different roads. Our faith grows through these different roads. We need to learn the voice of Jesus through the different roads that we travel. If you are off-road and you're sitting in a field, you are not growing. You are what I refer to as a weed. You are a weed, and you're probably causing all the allergies that we suffer. I know the metaphor doesn't travel that far, but it was going well when I was writing it. So I'm just saying you should be on the road. And Jesus on the road on Emmaus with his aunt and uncle wants to engage them. The story continues. It's pretty fantastic. He engages them with a conversation by asking them a question. What are you chatting about? And their response is, where have you been, man? Have you been in a cave? Have you not seen? There was the Messiah. They wanted to make him king last week, and now they crucified him this week. He's dead. He's gone. There is no hope for us. Our friends are going to be hunted down by everybody. You have no idea how difficult it is. He raised Lazarus, and he couldn't raise himself. My world has come to a crashing halt. And Jesus' response is, tell me more. 
<laughs> and they enter into this long speech. It's kind of a verbal vomiting of everything they could ever imagine. They're just like, ah, ah, ah. And then Jesus responds. After he's given the time, he responds to them and he says to them, in fact, he uses the same phrases that he used in Luke chapter 2, 49 and Luke 24, 26. When he was in the temple and they came to him and said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm about my father's business. He said, I know what I'm here for. Do you not know? I'm here on my father's business. This was supposed to happen. And he tells them, don't you understand? I've been telling you, this was supposed to happen. And he explains this all through the Bible. So this is the foundational thing that you need to remember today. If you forget everything I say, to know the voice of Jesus, you need the Bible. You need to know your Bible. If you forget everything, this is all I want you to remember. You need to know your Bible. You need to test the voice in your head against the Bible. You need to test the instincts in your account against the Bible. You need to make sure that the choices you make are tested against the Bible. I was flying home on Sunday, uh, last Sunday, and uh, I was at Ontario Airport, and of course, I was flying United, my apologies. Um, and it was a disaster. My flight to San Francisco was gonna get canceled. Just an absolute disaster. I wasn't gonna make it, and I said to the person, I said, I need to make it back. I have a long day on Monday. I start at 7 a.m. and I've got appointments all the way through to 9. I cannot miss any of them. You have got to get me back to Denver. And they're like, but the runway is broken in San Francisco. I said, fix it. Come on, initiative. We've got potholes. We still make it to church. You can fly it. <laughs> So eventually they said, oh, you know what, we'll, after waiting hours in the airport, they said, listen, if you can get to LAX, like, I mean, like now, if you can get to LAX, we got a flight direct to Denver, and you'll get there early hours, one o'clock in the morning. I am on my way to LAX, so I'm tired, it's been a long day, I get in the cab, and the driver wants to engage in a one and a half hour conversation, and I like, I do not want to talk to you. I mean, seriously, so what he does, he has all the windows down, you know, because it's, it's California, it's 10,000 degrees, people are getting ready to die, and so, it's, it, you know, it's really hot inside there. He closes all the windows because he can't hear me. I'm like, <gasps> I'm breathing in the back. He then switches on the air conditioning, and he's now cool, so then he turns it down for one. I'm like, I just, I'm leaning forward to breathe. That's what I'm doing right now. So I'm in this car, and this guy starts to talk to me about how he, you know, he believes in, in, in truth, and he knows that this is truth. And, and I said to him, hey, you know, help me understand where your journey is. He says, I am going to see my mother one day. She died. I'm going to see her in heaven. I said, this is great. How do you know this? He said, I pray to God. I said, you do? That's fantastic. Where do you learn about who this God is? Do you learn from the Quran? And he said, no, I don't read the Quran anymore. I'm no longer a Muslim. I said, well, do you read the Bible? He said, no, I don't trust the Bible. I've I'm, I'm never, never been a Christian. I said, how do you know? How do you know? He said, I just know. I just pray and I know. And I said, do you know empirically? Do you know emotionally? He said, I just know. I just pray and I know I'm going to be in heaven. If I'm just a good person, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be in heaven. And I said to him, listen, man. I have read the Quran and I have read the Bible. I'm telling you, you need to go read your Bible. You need to understand that the character of God is huge. I use different words in this. I basically said to him that if he's going to understand who God is, if he's going to hear the voice of God, he needs to know that it's not just a feeling he has. He needs to know that it's based on the stories that he's actually looked at. And the stories are in the Bible. I need him to go back to that. 
it was, it was a bizarre conversation. It was an hour and a half. I was exhausted by the end of it, but it was a good conversation to have. Then this week, I had a really weird conversation with someone. They came and told me that they are listening to some sermons. I, I use quotes. You see this? This is a sign. I'm using quotes because it's not real. They're listening to a sermon from a person who's in prison. This person is in prison for, multiple, for millions of dollars of fraud from his faith community. Uh, a messianic Jew of some sort, and he personally made millions of dollars, so he's in prison for like seven years. They've been listening to these sermons, and they're like, Pastor, there is truth in this guy. And I was like, oh, really? What is it? And, and they started to share that he's using the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha is teaching them things that this church has never taught them. And they just don't understand why we've never touched this. And I said, because the Apocrypha is not the Bible. The Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is not inspired by God. This is inspired by God. And you're going to another source and you're testing against it. And it's not right. The Apocrypha says you're saved by works. The Apocrypha teaches you in purgatory. The Apocrypha teaches you that the Second Testament has never even cited it. Jesus never even refers to it. The Jews rejected it, and you now have found this new set of books with this guy who's in prison, and now you believe all this stuff, and you're throwing everything away? If you are not with the right source, you will not hear the voice of God. And the source has to be trusted. So you need to test this book. You need to know this book. When you know this book, you will start to understand the voice of God. That's why we teach the Bible here at this church for our kids for our youth, and for our adults. Because we believe the more you do in your life groups, and your discipleship groups that take place here, straight after this service inside here, that the stories matter. And the more you know the stories, they'll start to connect in your head because Jesus will put them on. But I feel sometimes we don't want to turn the volume up on Jesus. We want to mute him, right? And this is how you mute Jesus. When you're trying to understand and you don't want to understand, you want to mute him. What you do is no imagination, no more questions. You just conform to what somebody else has told you. You become predictable and routine in your faith, and you reject all change. That's how you mute the voice of Jesus in your life. But if you want to turn up the volume, you need to be curious. You need to be imaginative. You need to show interest. You need to be engaged, and you need to say, I want to change. You think about any relationship you have, whether it's marriage or dating or siblings or parental or friends, and it, which one will, will be muted and which one will be better for you? I mean, if you say to the person that you love, you know what, I actually don't want to know anything new about you. I'm not interested in any new questions I have to ask you. I actually know how we actually exist. We're going through a routine. I enjoy the routine. What will happen? Your relationship will die. But if your interest is increased, if you're curious, if there's stuff that you could learn about the person you love more, then ask the question and engage in their life. And this is what happens in the story. Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you through the whole Bible. I'm going to explain all this. And he uses the Bible beautifully. It's kind of like the, the other road story of the Ethiopian and Philip. You remember that story? The guy read the Bible. He understood the Bible, but he didn't know what it meant. Somebody came along and said, let me collect the dots for you. Jesus explains, and then he gives them some space. And they say, hey, come in, come in, come into our house and eat with us. And Jesus says, no. I think it's okay. And there's no, no, I really want you to come in our house. And Jesus says, okay, if I come into your house, I'm going to be the head. I'm going to lead. And he comes in and he leads. 
And this is the thing with Jesus. He breaks the bread before them. Jesus says, if you ask me, I will talk to you. And when he does talk to us, he will change us. And there's two words, two phrases that show the transformation that happens. Jesus says to them in verse 25, you were slow of heart. But by the time he's finished, connecting all the stories in the Bible together, showing them on the third day that he was resurrected, their hearts burned now within them. So what does it look like to hear the voice of Jesus right now? People who are engaged in this book, people who respond to this book, people who discover Jesus in this book, your heart will burn. And you will burn to know more about Jesus, and you will burn to hear the voice of Jesus, and he will speak to you. This church is really blessed, I tell you this, and blessed, we, I, you take care of your pastors really well as well, and, and this week, Pastor Jessica and Pastor Lyra, they were away from Wednesday to Friday, and they were at a conference that the church helped them to be able to go out there, and uh, I've invited them to come up here, because throughout the entire conference, as they were out of this training event that was taking place, they're texting me all the time, these quotes and Bible passages and thoughts, and, and, and they're saying, I'm not crying right now, promise, I promise, I'm not crying right now, which I know means that they're weeping all the way through, and you're trying to say it's him, but I know. It is. <laughs> They were going through a journey this week, and I think that actually hearing the voice of God means that they've got something that's burning in their heart as well, and I, 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 want, I want to share some time with them right now. Thank you. They warned us at the Orange Conference. They said, when you go back to your churches this weekend, you will be tempted to start telling people things that you learned. Don't. Because what they said is, once you start, it just keep, you won't stop, and you just keep talking, and it's... Thomas already fell victim to it this morning. He came in and I tried. But there are a couple things that we took away from the few days we were there. A couple ideas that we want to bring to you. First, um, I want to invite you to consider this. A hundred years from now, the only thing that will matter, or maybe we should say the thing that will matter most, is your relationship with God. A hundred years from now, the thing that will matter most is your relationship with God. When we think about the kids in this church, in this neighborhood, a hundred years from now, it may not matter what car they drove, where they went to school, what career they chose, but what matters most is their relationship with God. Can I give you some bad news? Some of you are thinking, yes, you're a pastor, that's your job. <laughs> Can I give you some bad news? Bad news is, depending on which expert you read, depending on which, which uh, data you look at, between 60 and 80% of kids walk away from church. And they're doing it at a younger and younger age every year. They'll be crawling out pretty soon. But there's good news, because we believe there are some things that we can do as a community to change that. I'll give you another number, 936. 936. That is the number that we estimate between, a, a number of weeks that we estimate between the time a child is born and when they graduate and move out of the house on average. Soon to be parents, I know that's a depressing statistic. It might seem like a really big number, but I have to tell you as a dad, when the marbles start coming out of the jar, you realize how quickly they come out. You realize that every week is important. 
that every week matters. So I want to tell you all the rest of the things in a quick five minutes that we learned over three days. No. <laughs> um, what we would like to do is invite you to consider what we can do as a community. We want to give you three things, three really concrete, really simple things that we can commit to as a community, as individuals, as families, that we believe will change the future for kids in our church and in this neighborhood. And I get to share those three wonderful things with you. Number one, come to church every week. That's for all of you on live stream as well who couldn't bear the inch of snow. Come to church every week. Why? Because in 100 years, what will matter most? Where our treasures lie is where our heart is. And I personally believe that our greatest treasure that we all own is our time. And so when we create and prioritize our time, we prioritize church, we prioritize this community, this consistent community that we create every single Saturday at 345 Mapleton, we're storing our treasures in something that will last 100 years from now. So now number two, show up in the life of a kid. Now what does that mean? Elias shared the statistic that 60 to 80 percent of our kids are leaving the church. And that number has gone down from college students leaving to high schoolers leaving, and now it's even crept into middle school. So I want you guys to hold up 10 fingers, okay? Now I want you to put down four to eight of those fingers. So if 10 kids were here, maybe 10 years from now there'll be two. Now, what I want to share with you is that there's another um, statistic, there's other research on this. What's the common thread between those two or those three or those four? One of the biggest determining factors when asked by young adults, adults, why they didn't leave like many of their peers was they had five, so now everyone hold up five. They had five mentors in the church and not five pastors, not five family members. These are five unpaid church employees, not family members who invested in them, who invested in their lives. So what we want to encourage you today is to show up in the life of a kid. And that only happens when you can actually show up in the life of a kid and these kids see you on a weekly basis. Get to know their names, their favorite colors, what their favorite refreshment is. Show up during the week, whether that might be at a sports game. Invest in getting to know these kids and being a mentor. And number three, like Elias said, we have many, many things we want to share. And we want to have a conversation with you about the future of our ministry for our kids, our youth, our young adults, our church here. And so on June 17 and June 24, after church, we'll be having lunch and we'll be leading out in a conversation about what the future of ministry, the future of our kids looks like here at Boulder. And so I invite you to grab your connect cards and your worship guides. And if you don't have one, put your hand up high so we can get you one. Okay, we have a couple over here. Some of our elders will grab some of those for you. And I wanna invite you, there's a place um, for you to write and to write your name, a good contact, email or phone number, and which date you would be willing to come and have this conversation with us. And as you leave, um, drop it in the offering altars 
so that we can come together, we can share our inspiration, our passion for the kids here, and you can share yours with us, and we can do what we can to continue growing this ministry here. So I'd invite Pastor Japheth to pray for us as we close. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Heavenly Father, you lay a challenge down on us every single Sabbath that we come together here. You lay a challenge down on us every morning when we wake up and we realize we have another day of life ahead of us. God, time is so precious, so short, and every life is important, God. As we reflect on what you've called us to, may we respond to your voice. May we not mute it, but may we turn up the volume. And when we turn up the volume, may we actually take action with that. May we be curious and engaged. May we look at the kids in this church from zero through to 100, that they're all valuable. And they all need to be loved. And they all need to be engaged. And together, may the stories inside the word that you have treasured and protected for us change the way that we are. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.